Hello and welcome to another episode of David's Politics Show. One sometimes hears the view, occasionally propounded by people in the political arena, but more often by economic and commercial actors, that China's recent prickly behavior, to put it mildly, is caused primarily, or even solely, by what it sees as a US-led Western plot to contain it. If it weren't for the pressure Beijing feels from the West, and which it perceives as a kind of neo-colonial diktat, it would be much more amenable to persuasion on such varied issues as human rights in Xinjiang, or the transfer slash theft of intellectual property. Now, it certainly is true that in the case of Hong Kong, for instance, China is loath to be seen as kowtowing, tellingly itself, by the way, etymologically a Chinese verb, to its former colonial masters in relation to a locality, Hong Kong, which is self-evidently much closer to Beijing than it is to London. But viewing recent Chinese behavior through the lens of its relations with the West alone risks obfuscating the picture and pushing into the shadows important elements of Chinese thinking, which, however, come far better into view when one considers more closely China's relations with a country which never did subjugate it, unlike Japan, say, indeed which, as a state, is just about as young as the PRC itself is. And that country is India. For, after all, India itself knows a thing or two about anti-colonial struggle, having emerged as an independent state in the course of a traumatic and violent partition of the British Raj. But even though Indian policemen and soldiers did serve the British in China during the period when Western powers enjoyed so-called special concessions in China, India qua modern nation-state obviously never enjoyed a position of colonial superiority over the Chinese. And yet, as the recent serious deterioration in relations between the two countries shows, China has displayed towards India much the same aggressive, revanchist, and territorially outright bellicose behavior it has shown in its relations with the West. This has become most apparent along their shared border, which has long been disputed, and more precisely in this case, in eastern Ladakh. In spring and summer of last year, in a dramatic flare-up of already pre-existing tensions along the border, Chinese and Indian troops actually came to blows. And when I say came to blows, I mean that literally. Now, ironically, both sides had agreed not to introduce firearms into, disputed, into the disputed areas in order to minimize the risk of an accident with escalatory consequences. So it seems as though the soldiers on both sides simply beat each other to death, perhaps with primitive weapons like rocks and clubs. And given that these are largely mountainous areas, perhaps the soldiers threw each other off cliffs. Without access to classified intelligence reports, we cannot know. What we do know is that this escalation was deliberately crafted and sought by the Chinese. It is the Chinese who, at the very highest level, decided to destabilize and undermine the status quo ante. But why? China, after all, has already managed to alienate and scare the living daylights out of a number of its neighbors. The Philippines and Vietnam, for instance, are desperately attempting to hedge by courting US support. So why did Beijing choose to alienate yet another neighbor, indeed a very large one? Doesn't it have enough on its plate? Now, the most convincing explanation I've heard to date is that China's provocation in Ladakh was designed to serve the same purpose as its support of Pakistan is, namely to make of Ladakh a thorn in India's side one that will force India to commit significant financial resources to strengthen its land forces 
at the expense of, this is the point, further investment in its navy. China does not fear India's land forces. It is concerned about the possibility of its being contained within the first island chain and hemmed in from the south and southeast by a coalition of naval power of which India could be a significant element. So, better to stir up the nest on some godforsaken peak in eastern Ladakh, which is a far less strategic significance for China, and thereby force India to redirect its attention and much scarcer resources to that theater of operations. Doing so, of course, achieves nothing better than precisely what China, at least nominally, wanted to avoid, namely the creation of a China-containing formal or informal coalition of states on its borders. But this is not just ironic, as the purveyors of Thucydides' trap dynamics would have us believe. It is the inevitable result of a policy of unrelenting aggressive expansionism, which Beijing is not foolish enough to believe would not engender precisely such consequences. Xi Jinping, and we must mention him here in place of the metonymic Beijing, knows that his aggressive posture will cause peripheral countries to seek to balance against China's rise, according to the age-old principle that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But he has decided to gamble anyway, hungry and impatient to lord it over others just as others once lorded it over China. Discarding the sage advice of Deng Xiaoping, who knew that time was on China's side, and that China needed time to catch up with the West, Xi has prematurely decided to cast caution to the winds and bear China's teeth. India, which lost a war against China in 1962, has first-hand experience of what happens when China decides to throw its weight around, and so it is hardly surprising that the noises about the US coming out of Delhi are decidedly warmer now. The enemy of my enemy, as the adage goes. India in the Cold War was a so-called non-aligned country. Now that meant what it said on the tin up to a point. To adapt Orwell's famous turn of phrase, India was more non-aligned with some states than with others, since it had particularly cordial relations with the Soviet Union, especially in the wake of the Sino-Soviet split. To this day, most of India's weaponry is manufactured and sold by Russia. Its air force is largely composed of MiGs, it has ordered the S-400 air defense system, its nuclear-powered submarines are released from Russia. But India cannot lean on Russia to balance against China because Russia itself is but the junior partner in Xi's carriage. That is why, even though Russia needs and welcomes Delhi's continued armaments purchases, it is not pleased with India's turn towards the US, a country with which India and the Cold War often had rather frosty relations. The emerging constellation can be seen clearly in the increasing prominence of the so-called Quad, India, the US, Japan, Australia. Just to mention these countries is immediately to reveal who they are all concerned about, the proverbial elephant in the room. India jealously guards its non-aligned status to this day and has spurned talk of formal alliances, but quietly and on the sidelines, it is exploring ways to join what is clearly a nascent coalition of wary China balancers. With the Chinese economy already far larger than the Indian one, it hardly has a choice. In the post-Bismarckian Wilhelmine period, important elements of Wilhelmine society indulged in a kind of great power fantasy, whereby the German Empire too deserved and should get its place in the sun, its colonies, its sphere of influence. 
This no doubt played a role in pushing the British Empire into more cordial relations with France, with which it often had colonial disputes in the past, and a fortiori with the Russian Empire, with which it had tangled precisely because of India in distant Afghanistan. Soon, Imperial Germany found itself confronted with what had been Bismarck's worst nightmare, encirclement and the possibility of a war on two fronts. This is indeed then what later transpired in the First World War, although arguably in part due to the inflexibility of the German war plan itself, which called for a rapid strike west and submission of France in time for a massive redeployment to the Eastern Front, where the Russian army would have presumably mobilized much more slowly. The only problem, of course, being that the strike westwards included the overrunning of Belgium, a neutral state. Now, one must not overindulge in such historical analogies. A world with nuclear weapons is not the same as one without them, and communist China is not the same as Imperial Germany. But thinking with and through historical examples can be of help in understanding our present because there are similarities, above all in the impatience shown by Xi, which contrasts so starkly with Deng's, as indeed with Bismarck's. Few things are ever altogether new under the sun, but the configuration of events and actors, that is ever-changing. For Western observers, and especially Western economic and commercial interests, this analysis, if correct, should set alarm bells ringing. The suppression of Hong Kong was only the prelude. To argue that it is Western containment, or even more trivially the hot-tempered rhetoric of the previous Trump administration, which fundamentally spoiled the party and pushed China into this posture, has it exactly backwards. Chinese aggressive expansionism, it turns out, has no special Chinese characteristics. It is a movie we have seen before. It is a rising power, knows itself to be such, and under Xi has grown restless. The tiger doesn't want to crouch any longer. The dragon is done hiding. In Hong Kong, Taiwan, the Diao Islands, Ladakh, and all along the Nine Dash Line, the message is clear. It's our turn now. So get with the program. Thanks for tuning in to David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned for more such episodes. Until next time, so long.